0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Please have a seat, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 today, Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and pull them out and open up or grab your phone, Matthew 4, 18. So we are in the season of Epiphany, and over the course of the season of Epiphany, this is the time when we, when we start to learn about who was born at Christmas, right? So this is the season following Christmas, and, uh, and so we learned about the birth of Christ, At on Christmas, and then and then during Epiphany, we start to learn who is this child who has been growing into a man uh, and what is he here for? What's his nature? What's his his work? And so, we go through a lot of things in Epiphany about the beginnings of Jesus's ministry, things like his baptism. And this week, we're talking about the calling of his disciples, the first of his disciples. We used to have a a great um, uh, little children's book that we had with our kids that had little holes in the back, and you could put your fingers in they were like little sock puppets do you ever had any of these and they had little disciple faces on them and then you could wiggle them and open it I still play with it sometimes, but uh, but it, it's a uh, we ha- it's a, a more important part of Jesus's ministry, right? And this is if you if you have a background in church, this story today is one that's probably familiar to you. And here's how an easy sermon on Matthew chapter four, starting at verse eighteen, goes. Okay, here, here's how it works. You say Jesus was preaching in an area, uh, in the area he walked by the Sea of Galilee. He sees Peter, la- or, I mean, sorry Simon, that is later called Peter and Andrew in the boat. He says, "Follow you, follow me." and I will make you fishers of men, which is a catchy phrase because right there's fishermen and then there's fishers of men. Right? That's, that's, it's catchy. It's, it's uh, brandable. And so, so then they immediately left their nets and follow him. And then, and then a little bit later on, uh, he sees James and John and he does the same thing with them. And they leave their father Zebedee in the boat and they come and follow him as well. And so the call for Christians is to be fishers of men. And that's the call for you. And it's going to cost you something. You might have to leave your nets. So what are your nets? What are you going to have to leave? How do you come and be a fisher of men, bringing people into the kingdom of God? Amen. We're done for the day. Look, that's, a fine, that's a fine sermon. We could unpack that. We could, uh, we could get into more detail on that, and that would be all right and, uh, and good and proper. But I want to take a little bit of a different angle at things today and look at the figure that we may have missed in this story. We've got James and John, you've got Peter and Andrew, you've got Jesus, and there's one other person, Zebedee, the father of James and John. Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. And going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here's poor Zebedee, mending the nets by himself. Having to go home to his wife to explain why his kids aren't with him, right? Strange day. Uh, We were at work. Guy came along, called the boys. They left. I don't know, hun. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be fine. What what could go wrong? Um, well, we never we never talk about Zebedee except for when we're talking about his sons. And this happens to anyone any of us who are parents. That eventually you start to be more known as Eli and Silas's dad rather than Dan. Like that that happens as uh, as your kids get older. Um, but it's tempting here. The reason I want to talk about Zebedee is because it's tempting here to think that Zebedee is doing something lesser or even disobedient by staying in the boat. Because the, the glory goes to James and John, his sons, who became, who were disciples, who became apostles. Disciples means like sort of learners and followers. Apostles means one who are sent. Um, and so they are disciples later to be apostles, and, and we celebrate them. And, and it's easy to think of Zebedee as doing something incorrect by staying in the boat. And I want to submit to you that I think this is a misreading of Scripture to see it that way. Matthew clearly shows us that James and John, his sons, have a specific and special calling from Jesus to follow him in a particular way, and that Jesus did not call Zebedee to this. But that does not mean that Zebedee is unimportant or disobedient. And the reason this is important, because I I think that we can see today sometimes that, that Jesus has a mission in the world, and he's calling us to be fishers of men, and calling us to bring people who are outside of his kingdom into the goodness of his gospel, and that's true, and sometimes we can elevate those with specific callings rather than the majority of us. We can, we can think that it's more important to be a missionary who goes overseas or uh, to be an ordained ministry rather than the majority of us who are not called to those specific callings, those who are in a quote-unquote secular profession, that somehow we are not central to the mission of Jesus, and that could not be further from the truth. Let me. we'll unpack that a little bit more, but let's learn some more about Zebedee, about what we can, what we can learn about him. There's not a lot about Zebedee, but um, in some other places in Scripture, it gives us some more information. In Mark chapter 1, uh, he gives another detail that Matthew left off, uh, that when James and John left, Zebedee was actually left in the boat with the hired hands. And so in other words, they had employees. So, so Zebedee was not left high and dry by himself. He was not mending the nets by himself. He had other employees with him. And this means a couple of things. Uh, One, again, he's not now destitute because his sons went off. But two, this means probably that Zebedee was a successful businessman. He has employees. He has, this is, uh, there is, so James and John, employees and dad were all in the boat. So there, this is a, this is a bigger fishing operation. This isn't like they had a, they had a a Yeti cooler and a fishing rod, right? I mean, this is a, this is a big, this is a big ordeal. Uh, Luke chapter five actually tells us that James, it says this, James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. So they had partnerships with one another as well. So there's sort of a fleet of boats. It's it's it doesn't tell us specifically, but it's easy to think that there were probably more boats in this partnership as well. And so Zebedee uh, is a uh, is a is a businessman. He's got like Zebedee and Sons Fishing Conglomerate, right? I mean, he's uh, there's a lot going on with Zebedee as a businessman and as a and as a fisherman. Also, the other thing that we can know about Zebedee is that Zebedee was married to Salome. Now, this might be, you might be familiar with this name, you might not, but there's two different Salomes in the scripture, just in case, so, we, so there's, we have a little disambiguation here, right? That uh, uh, she is not Salome, who is an exotic dancer and, uh, and got John the Baptist killed. Different Salome. And if right now you're like, what? I tell you to read your Bible. I mean, there are fascinating things that happen in the Scripture, right? And so that is not the Salome that Zebedee is, is married to. Different one, okay? But the Salome that we, that we hear about is, uh, is that there is this group of women who are, who are with Jesus. We don't know if they're with him all the time, but they show up in various places. Uh, and one of the most important places is that they are with Mary at the crucifixion. Uh, and, uh, and then they help to take Jesus to the tomb. And then Salome, who's listed as one of those women, is also listed as one of the people who are present at the, on the third day when they go back to the tomb and find it empty. So, so Zebedee is married to Salome. All right, so he, uh, he, is, uh, he has gotten a family that is involved in following Jesus. So here's the implication. James and John's family were all followers of Jesus. James and John were apostles. Salome, their mom, was present at least on and off during the ministry of Jesus. So again, we get back to what about Zebedee? Well, here's some things I think that we can learn about, that we can reasonably, reasonably extrapolate about who Zebedee is. Part of Zebedee's missionary work was that he was a dad. It's part of his missionary work. Someone raised these kids to be prepared for this moment. And listen, Jesus gives them a nickname. Later on, I love this, that Jesus gives out nicknames. Um, and, uh, and you can read about it in Mark chapter 3. He calls James and John Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. I guess that would make Zebedee thunder right? Uh, that, uh, I don't know if Jesus called him that. Like, hey, Thunder, what's up? I don't know. I don't know. But, but if you name somebody Sons of Thunder, I'm assuming that the early years of James and John's life as they're running around the home were probably not quiet, right? Uh, and so Zebedee, as the dad was reigning in the Sons of Thunder uh, and ministering to them and discipling them, he had made disciples of his children before Jesus called them. Before Jesus made them his official disciples of the 12, they were disciples of God because their dad led them there. Parents, this is one of your primary callings to make disciples of your children. And and you know what? I think Zebedee was a good dad, too. And here's one of the reasons why, why I think that. Because after the crucifixion of Christ, after Peter has denied Christ three times, after James, James ran off and, and left him, John had stayed at the foot of the cross. But the, but the apostles are sitting in, in shame and in fear and they've given up three years of their life and now they think Jesus is dead and they're, so there's anguish and they're, have we made a mistake? What's going on? Do you know what they did? John 21 tells us that they went back fishing. They went back to their boats. They felt comfortable in their shame and their anguish and their pain to go back to their dad. I think Zebedee was a good dad. He was full of grace He received them back in their time of of upheaval and of shame. What about you? I want to challenge you to see your parenting as disciple-making, not making them well-rounded, college-bound, poised for success, but first disciples of Christ before anything else. Their discipleship is more important than their sports teams. I know, shock, I know, It's more important than their athletics is how you lead them to Jesus. And if you have to do less athletics and less clubs and less all of the things in order for them to be able to be focused on learning about who the person and work of Jesus are, it is your duty as a parent to do that and to make that happen. Why are you parenting? Yes, to keep them alive, to feed them, to clothe them but also to bring them to eternal life in Christ. Your job as a parent is to disciple. And if you're like, well, I feel a little ill-equipped on this. Well, great. Let them see you learn. Let them see you press into the scripture. Let them see you pray. Let them see you seek out help to know how to disciple your, your own kids. And listen, Salome, she, there's this really embarrassing story about Salome in the scripture. At one point, James and John are following Jesus, uh, and, and Salome brings them to Jesus, and she's like, Jesus, like when the other disciples can't hear. When you come into your glory, can my sons sit on your right and left hand? Right, like she's helicopter mom, right? I mean, she is, she's, going, she's going, my boys are the best. My, my, I know that everybody's special, but my boys are extra special. And she went to the God of the universe to try to get her children special treatment from the Messiah. That's not a great parenting move. She had to learn too. We all have to learn, and we all make mistakes as parents as well, but I encourage you, Be a disciple maker of your children. Let them see your own stumbles and your own need for grace. Let them see you pursue reconciliation. Teach them the scriptures. And if you say, I don't know how to teach them the scriptures because I don't know the scriptures, then learn the scriptures. Like, read the manual. And not everyone's able to have their own children. Not everyone's able to 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 be gifted in that particular way and this may or may not be a part of your individual calling but as a member of the church family we are all called to support the growing and raising of our children here in In your local church as well. In fact, we make vows, right? We make a big deal to point out every time that we baptize children that we're making vows as a community to support and help raise them in Christ. And so even if they're not your own biological children, they are children here that need our support and help of the community. And you know if you are a parent that you would love to have other people outside of their mom and dad pouring into the lives of your children to help support them and pull them towards Christ, people that they respect and honor, actually taking time to reach out to your children. You want that, am I right? So be that for other people's kids, whether you have children or not. And if you're sitting like, gosh, Dan, I hear this, but I'm still just feeling like I, just, I don't know how to do it. Here's what I want you to do. Volunteer for children's ministry because you can be tutored then how to do this and how to learn how to be able to raise your own kids and help those of others grow up in Christ. Zebedee, part of his mission work was that he was a dad who raised children in Christ. So whether you are a mom or a dad, whether you have children or not, I submit to you that this is part of our calling as Christians together. Part of Zebedee's fruit grows on other people's trees. All right, so the second thing I think that we can see about Zebedee's missionary work is that he was a husband. He was a dad, and he was a husband, Not everyone is called to marriage either. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 7 said that he's called for singleness to, for the purpose of serving Christ, and that may, may be your calling too, and that's good and right. But for Zebedee, he was called to marriage, and he supported his sons and his wife in their ministry work. It would have been very odd in those days in particular um, for, for a wife to travel in the way that Salome did without her husband's consent, right? Right? I mean, that's not our discussion for today as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a, it's just a point of fact, right? It would be strange if she was walking around the countryside meeting with Jesus and following Jesus and that Zebedee didn't know about it or wasn't supportive of it. So Zebedee supported the ministry of his family. So I want to challenge you as well, if you are married, to see your marriage as ministry. Listen, if you, wanna, if you want to work out the things that we're talking about here from the front all of the time, grace, forgiveness, patience, maturity, be married, right? Like that's how you work those things out um, because two sinful people in the same house is going to lead to conflict and the need for grace and patience and reconciliation. And that's the heart of the gospel, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage teaches us about the relationship between Jesus and his church, the bride, and that there is sacrificial submission and love between the two. That if you want to break unhealthy patterns of sin that have been a part of your family for generations, Jesus is the one who can do that through your marriage. And so I tell you, your marriage is part of your ministry. And if we can pursue sacrificially and full of grace and full of love and compassion and full of zeal for honoring the other person in our marriage, what an example we can be for the world. And if we are going to be fishers of men, fishers of people who do not yet belong to Christ, one of the ways that we can be the best example is to be a countercultural marriage that is not about tearing the other person down, but is about in being in submission to one another in love for the purpose. Of sacrificially raising up the other person. What a witness we can be in our world. What an example we're going to be for a hurting and skeptical and pride filled world that we are in. If you need some help with that, we've got people. You let us know. I know a guy um, who can help you out. If you're saying, I want to learn how in my marriage I uh, I can consider this ministry and how we can press into our marriage in godly and gospel ways and be able to serve others as well in that situation. We'd love to be able to help you learn and be discipled in that. The last thing I'll say about Zebedee is this. I think part of Zebedee's missionary work is that he was a good fisherman. He was a good fisherman. We talked about, he has employees, he has partners, he has boats. I mean, there there could have been multiple boats, who knows? But that Zebedee was a good fisherman. One of the ways that Zebedee participated in the mission of God was to be very good at his profession for the glory of God. If you want to understand the relationship of work and life and life balance and how do you approach your profession, listen, don't go to the business section in Barnes and Noble or Amazon or wherever else. Like don't pick up the latest book on the five trends for mindfulness in your profession, right? I mean, it's a it's a billion dollar business for people to try to figure out how to approach their own profession. I tell you that you have the book in your hand that is going to lead you to what you are looking for and how to be a be a Christian in your profession, and that is the scripture itself, because the scripture talks a great deal about it. To learn a theology of work, of understanding of of our profession and our vocation. If you get a chance to take Nathan Hedman's course here, uh, who is a part of our church and teaches his course a couple of times a year on this, the theology of work, it'll blow your mind and change your life. But here's the basic idea of this is that in the very garden itself, the Garden of Eden, when we were created, man and woman were created, and they were created to work, to tend the garden. They were created to work. Work is not the problem. Uh, That that we are created to be a part of, of God's reconciling of the world and redemption of the world and part of His of His ongoing creation of the world through the vocation and the profession that we are called to. There is not a separation between your vocation and your ministry, or your vocation and your worship, or your vocation and your faith. We are made to be workers. There's rest in there too. Yep. Resting resting well is a good part of understanding how we work well. And Sabbath was, is commanded of us. And so that doesn't mean that I just gave you an excuse to be a workaholic. Nope. God says stop and remember who's the one that's actually accomplishing all of the things that you think you're accomplishing. And that's me, God. And so stop and Sabbath and remember that. And so if you're pushing through that because you're a workaholic, you need to repent from that and, uh, and rest and take time with your family and with your church and worshiping and stopping and remembering who is actually God, and it's not you. So yes, rest is a part of that, but work is a part of that. How do you steward your vocation for Christ? When you're like, I, 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 work, at, I work at a fast food place. How, how does that have eternal significance? Or I'm a student, or... I like to watch the show Dirty Jobs. Anybody else? I like Mike Rowe and Dirty Jobs. That's a good show, right? Where he just goes around and and does all the jobs that nobody really wants to do. And there's like a whale autopsy specialist and all these weird things. Like how do you you be a whale autopsy autopsy specialist for Jesus, right? How How does that work? And I would say this, be the best you can be at it. And I don't mean that to say, be the best you can be at it so that in your achievement, you can show how great you are, but to show that everything that you do, you do for the glory of God. Everything that you do, you do for the glory of God. And therefore, your work, you do for the glory of God, and it deserves your best. And therefore, you work at a fast food place. Great, then be the best fast food worker that you can be. Um, and uh, and take pride in that work, because you are working in that profession for Jesus, or you 're a doctor or you're a president of the united states i don't i don 't care what profession you 're in the the council is the same you do it for the glory of God, for the honor of God, and in your work and vocation, you are a witness to those who are around you by by being the best that you can be at what you do if you'll if you'll let me read a longer quote for you. It's one of my favorite quotes. And so, uh, so if you'll let me, just give me a second to read this to you. It's by a woman named Dorothy Sayers. And if you don't know Dorothy Sayers, you should. Um, she wrote a, an article called Why Work? And I encourage you to Google it and find it. But she says this, and I'll unpack it for you. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of its life? the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Church, by all means, and decent forms of amusement certainly, But what use is all that if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. For if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth? No piety in the worker will compensate for work that is not true to itself, for any work that is untrue to its own technique is a living lie. So what she just said there, in case you missed it, she said the church tends to just go, hey, you're a carpenter. Look, the best we can do for you is don't get drunk a lot and come to church on Sunday. And she said, no. No. The church needs to be encouraging those who are in the secular profession to be the best that they can be at their profession for the glory of God. That for the carpenter, we say, don't make bad tables. Because if you say, I'm a servant of Christ and I do all things for his glory, and then people set a glass of water on your table and it slides off onto the ground because it's so crooked, nobody's going to believe you that you actually do everything for the glory of God. So whatever you do, you do so for the glory of God. Your work, whatever it is, can be meaningful, can have eternal significance because you are doing it for the glory of God. You don't have to change the world. I, I really hope that our teenagers can hear this, because there's a reason why anxiety is through the roof on our teenagers and our younger generations is because they've been told since they were born that they were made to change the world, and the vast majority of us will never change the world. We won't. And that's OK. It's not your job to change the world. It's your job to be a faithful Christian, as a fisherman, as a doctor as a fast food employee, as the president of the United States. Whether history remembers you or not, Jesus does. And he's the one that's changing the world, and we get to participate with him. So take that anxiety off your shoulders. Take that depression off your shoulders that somehow you're a failure because you haven't changed the world. You belong to Jesus. Jesus has changed the world, and you're working with him. So through that, you have, but he gets the glory for that. And whatever we do, we do for the glory of God. Now listen, I also didn't just give you permission to be a drug dealer, right? I didn't just say, like, whatever you want to do, do it for Jesus. And you're like, man, I got the best stuff that's out there. There's the best that I can be. No, that's not the way that works either. You cannot, you cannot benefit from the corruption of God's creation or go against the work of his kingdom and do that for the glory of Christ. There are certain things that are definitely off limits for us as Christians but Proverbs 11:10 says when the righteous prosper the city rejoices. Why? Why would the city rejoice when the righteous prosper? Because, per, because if we're pursuing a, our God, and our God is a sending God, that by participating with him, we are naturally out in the community, in our city, making the city better in our businesses, in our work, as students. We're gonna make our high schools and middle schools and elementary schools better places by the fact that we are representing God there. You do so as well if you're out in the business world, or if you're a stay-at-home parent, you are doing the work of bringing the kingdom where you are. Jeremiah 29 7 says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. As you work for the goodness of the community and the city that that we're in, in your professions and in your service, it's also what blesses us as well. This is what happens at the end of Acts chapter 2 when Peter, excuse me, Peter preaches the first Christian sermon, and then there's a description of what the first earliest church is about in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And it says at the end that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. They were just being Christians, and they were enjoying the favor of their cities. How do you do this in your profession? You, You work with, with a godly work ethic, that means working hard and working well uh, and resting well and having the proper boundaries that you should have in that. It means pursuing your profession and your vocation, whatever it is, through the ethics and morals, the righteousness that God has given to us as well. It also means there's a very, like, you take Zebedee, for example, in this as well. In in what you gain from your work and business, Zebedee most likely was financially supporting the work of Salome and his sons as well. Jesus didn't eat for free, right? In fact, they they had treasurers. Judas was the treasurer, which is why we keep a close eye on our finance team. I'm kidding. That's not... We love you, our finance team. Uh, that, uh, but they had a treasure. The point is, if they have a treasure, there's funds coming in. Where are those funds coming in? Well, they're coming in from people who are fishing and making money, fishing and able to support the work of, of ministry from Jesus who didn't have a job to, that made money. And so you are supporting the work of the kingdom when you give at church, when you support missionaries, when you give of what you bring in. That is part of your work and ministry. So Zebedee, part of his missionary work was being a good fisherman. So what about you? We bring all of this together then. Maybe you're called to leave your nets. Maybe. Maybe the Lord is going to stir in you and you are called to join the Webers in Rwanda. Maybe. Maybe he's calling you to ordain ministry where you're supposed to step out of those particular roles and into a particular role in the church. Maybe. But maybe he's not calling you to leave your nets. Maybe he's giving you a specific calling to stay and mend your nets. To be there and to be a great mom or dad who serves your children well and is a public disciple so your children can follow you. Or if you don't have children, to support and love the children of other people. Maybe he's calling you to stay. Stay in that boat and glorify God with your profession to be a witness in your profession, to use your skills for Christ, to use your financial gains to support the work of the church and Christ's ministry. And so here's what I want to leave you with. If you're a Christian, your life and your work are important to the mission of God. Your parenting, your vocation, your studies, your life in general, being a neighbor, don't bear the weight of changing the world. That's God's job. Just live faithfully the life he's given you. And God sees you, and I see you, and God values you, and I value you as your pastor. So together, let's be fishers of men, fishers of people, to see how the work that he's called us to do and the various roles that he's called us to play is going to bring many people into his gospel, into the goodness of his kingdom, all for the glory of his name. Let's be like Zebedee. Our names are real small and not as big as the names of others, but that our ministry is vitally important to the sake of the world and to the glory of Christ. And if you don't know Jesus yet, as you're hearing all these these things that I'm saying to Christians, I encourage you, this is the life you're being called to. Through his death and resurrection and ascension, repent and believe and be baptized. Come into this depth, this meaning, this significance In this life that you are being called to. Jesus wants every part of our lives, and he wants to redeem it, make it for his glory, and in return, that it be the most joyful of professions for you, is following Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for Zebedee. Thank you for his faithfulness as a father and a fisherman and a husband. Thank you for for how his work, although not detailed in the scripture, has led to many people coming to know you. We honor Zebedee this morning in your name, and we pray that we can follow his example and his model in our lives as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.